complicated and fascinating world that invites us to dive deep into its intricacies. Exploring the ideas and events that excite, intrigue, irritate, and confound us is how we graduate our knowledge beyond meme culture. Join us over a cocktail as we expand our understanding and share in the beauty we find along the way. I'm Stephen Torna. I'm Kat Dwyer. And I'm Stephen Henning. Welcome to the Whiskey Bench. What's going on tonight, Kat? <laughs> <laughs> We're going to get into some John Locke. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Nature of man. Beautiful. Social contract. You just came from yoga. I came from yoga. So you're going to be <laughs> like chill. Yeah, this will be a very relaxed Zen presentation of John. Excellent. Locke. <laughs> I am so juiced up right now. I have no chill. Oh God. So this should be good. <laughs> great. Great. We'll balance each other out. What juice do you have? Too much coffee? No, just tons of stuff going on. Oh, okay. Just yeah. like busy. It's raw energy. Raw energy. Yeah. Okay. I gotta like put in 120 percent right now for like another week. Okay. To catch up behind on everything. Mm, yeah. And then, in theory, it'll be chill. <laughs> Are you still trying to take a month off? It would be nice, but probably realistically, that'll never ha- that'll <laughs> never happen until like the winter, and winter's over. <laughs> right. Yes, that's something to celebrate. Winter is pretty much over. It is. It may have. I mean, it was snowing on my way here. (laughs) And it's snowing, but. It's not sticking, though. There's sunshine on the way. Oh, yeah. Next week, we're going to have like almost 70 degree days. I'm going to be gone. But I'll be in in sunny California, so that's okay. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going home for Easter. First time I'll be seeing most of my family in almost two years. Which is the longest I've ever gone. Are you guys going to do like a big Easter dinner together? Yeah, our family does a big Easter celebration. What kind of food do you do? Oh, the best. It's my favorite meal of the year. My uncle usually roasts um, and he's been doing, he's been kind of like smoking it and slow cooking it on the barbecue. Mm -hmm. Um, But he'll do like a big ham or pork roast. And then my aunt always makes uh, chile reno. Homemade and it's delicious. And then... There's just like lots of beautiful like deviled eggs and green salads and nice Lovely. bread and uh lots of gin. My yeah, my uncle I was gonna <laughs> say my uncle greets us. Everyone gets greeted pretty much at the door with a lemon drop mm. and with gin. Or maybe it's not really even a lemon drop. It's more maybe it's even just like a gin martini basically with like lots of fresh lemon juice from his Meyer lemon tree. It's oh, killer. Oh, right, because you, like, grow fruit on trees. Right. <laughs> in your backyard there. <laughs> yeah, and they're, like, ready in April, so. <laughs> I pay, like, $3 for one shriveled-up Meyer lemon here. I know. It's disgusting. <laughs> there is, like, there's, like, a two-week period when Meyer lemons are available at the co-op. That's what I've discovered. You driving? You no, flying? I'm flying. I'm flying. I wanted to drive. You want to smuggle me back enough Meyer lemons to make, like, a... <laughs> Lemon pie. <laughs> Actually, yeah, maybe I'll try to bring a few back. I'll see what I can score. Excellent. <laughs> yeah. So what are we drinking tonight? We are, man, look at us. We're just diving straight in. You know. If you haven't already tell, or if you can't already tell, uh, Mr. Henning is mm. not joining us this evening. Right. As you have heard in past episodes, he and Dixie are in the process of buying a house and they're... I believe 
Your stomach's just ground. <laughs> <It's> my stomach. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, cat's got the rumbles. I'm hungry. Worked too hard in, during yoga. <laughs> no, uh, the Hennings are, are buying a house, and I, I believe it's maybe their lender or whatnot. Always wants to have meetings with them at really weird times. Yeah, like late in the evening. Late in the it's evening. So we're like at a wedding, and they had to ditch. Well, not ditch, but they had to leave because they had a meeting at like six. Mm. And then tonight, they, they got a... a last minute request for some important paperwork and whatnot so he needed to duck and dive and take care of business so he's not with us yes sad so we will be missing it's kind of a shame he's not here for this philosophical conversation honestly this is kind of his biscuits and gravy totally we'll do some kind of follow-up with him i'm sure he'll have oh i'm sure ideas to share like mm, you guys said something and i wasn't there so we need to we need to discuss this right yeah. now we'll get our devil's advocacy at some point yes <laughs> also i completely just ignored the question from about two minutes ago we are drinking tonight an antibe how i decided to make this drink this evening went to the store i said we haven't had a drink with grapefruit in it yet mm. so about an hour ago i bought some grapefruit juice and i said I'll find a drink that has grapefruit juice in it. And pretty much, you know, we only drink gin, it seems. <laughs> I think out of 22 uh, drinks now, like probably 15 or 16 of them have been gin. Really? Yeah. Oh. I go through a lot of gin, so. I like it. Yeah, and it's summertime now, so it's like. It's summertime, so kind of. <laughs> gin, I guess. But uh, we got an ounce and a half of gin. Half an ounce of benedictine which is a liqueur it's an herbal liqueur sweetened with honey and then two ounces of grapefruit juice shake the living daylights out of it throw it in your desired glass Mm -hmm. and uh, apparently garnish with an orange slice and have any oranges Mm, fresh orange juice would be nice yeah it would be really good yeah but uh, I really like it very pretty color. It is beautiful. Nice pink hue. Kind of looks like a Hemingway daiquiri. Oh, what's a Hemingway daiquiri? It's a daiquiri, that but with fun. grapefruit juice instead. What's actually in a daiquiri? Oh, what is it? White rum, lime, and sugar, and then the Hemingway daiquiri. Instead of sugar, you use grapefruit juice. Basically, Hemingway was a diabetic and his and an alcoholic and an, and an alcoholic and <laughs> his and his spot to be his in. reasoning was that it was better for his diabetes to make a daiquiri with grapefruit juice there you go there's probably some nugget of logic in maybe there. <laughs> we'll get to that drink eventually you can od on <laughs> potassium though which grapefruit juice has a ton of potassium i did not know that yeah like if you're an alcoholic and grapefruit juice is your like mixer of choice you can have problems <laughs> oh Hemingway baby yeah <laughs> okay uh, when I do the the Hemingway daiquiri I'm sure there'll be actually history on the drink which yeah. will be fun yeah a lot of the drinks I've been picking lately are like this drink was invented in 1983 at the blah 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 bar and it's like okay there's no history <laughs> these aren't classics but still really good but they're tasty all right are we going to dive right into philosophy, just like right off the bat? There's a bunch of current events, and uh, I'm not at all caught up, and there's a lot of stuff going on right now, and uh, my tendency when it comes to more serious events is to wait a couple weeks 
let the fog clear. Yeah. Let all the annoying, stupid people stop talking mm-hmm. and see what actually is going on and, and get some good analysis on it. So I think we'll just kind of bypass that for the time being. Totally. John Bachelor uh, always said when he would report on like breaking news stories, mm-hmm. he'd always say like, now remember, we're in the fog of war, which yeah. <laughs> I think is actually really valuable uh, 100%. thing to keep in mind. Yes. So, Yeah. So John Locke, uh, Henning did a really good job picking <laughs> that philosopher for me to, <laughs> to focus in on. I'm a big fan. Not going to lie. I guess I'll just I'll run down some of his like background to sort of set the stage. He is from England, was born in Somerset in 1632. He was. His father was a was a lawyer and I think a bit of a free thinker as well, um, who to some degree challenged the monarchy. But Locke was bright and wound up studying at Westminster School um, and then went on to Oxford um, and got a, a master's degree. He became a physician and like proper physician. He like performed surgeries, which... In the surgeries in the, in the 17th century sound yeah. wild terrifying yeah i want to put this gag in your mouth after you chug this yeah rum and then yeah hold you down and i wanted to look more into that i wish i wish i had um because i was just curious like i think i think there were some like maybe sort of primitive like numbing agents that they would use mm-hmm. i don't know enough about to really speak to it but but yeah it was rough i mean it was a, if if you opted for surgery, there was a very good chance that you would die. Just die so, anyway, right? Yeah, it was yeah. kind of it was a last resort. So anyway, yeah, he but he was a good physician. He eventually became the private physician um, of Lord Ashley, who was a prominent English politician, and he was actually Lord Ashley was the founder of the Whig movement, which eventually became very popular and prominent, and and spread to the United States as well, and was kind of you could say sort of like maybe the beginning of like what would eventually turn into like the classical liberal mm. party and in and liberal not in our modern sense but liberal in sort of like the limited government individual rights right um realm the good good liberal yeah <laughs> yeah yeah he became lord ashley's um private physician he actually saved his life by performing a surgery to remove like a gnarly cyst that was on his liver so that was again one of those things where he had like lord ashley had dealt with it for a long time and it got to a point where he was going to die so they figured well we might as well try to remove it and john locke successfully did remove it apparently he also inserted like a metal um pipe that I think from what I was he- listening to on a podcast, it sounds like it actually, it like attached to his liver and came out. It was like exposed out of mm-hmm. his side of his body. And Locke's I- thinking was that it would help like drain the liver or something. Okay. I don't fully understand his reasoning for it, which modern medical experts have obviously pointed out like that doesn't make any sense <laughs> and <laughs> and probably like increase the chances of introducing bacteria and infection and so uh, like kind of gnarly but lord ashley lived and all right look it's the 1600s out. so uh <laughs> it's better to be lucky than good that's true <laughs> that's, so it sounds like he was lucky at surgery <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's fair it does sound like he was lucky yeah 
but so so Lord Ashley was so grateful that he saved his life that he kind of he ended up like well he was his private physician so he lived with him um and it and it really brought him into sort of like the current political workings of England at that time and Lord Ashley being the founder of the Whig party they were sort of ideologically aligned and eventually he leaned on Locke a lot to sort of help him formulate like what that party would stand for. Um, and then he also became his patron and would and provided him the opportunity to do a lot of his writings. Like he wrote the first and second treaties on government while he was like working for Lord Ashley. So that really kind of gave him a start to pursue to kind of move away from his medical work and pursue his philosophical mm-hmm. writing work. And eventually, after he kind of became prominent in the political philosophical world, he eventually fled to the Netherlands um, in 1683 because there was, he was suspected of being a part of a plot to overthrow King Charles II. Which is, uh. yeah, historians say that there's, there isn't very strong evidence for that, but that was, um, what was assumed at the time. You so said that was 1683. Yeah. So that was four years after Hobbes died and Hobbes had already fled England for the British civil war. So this was, it must've been right after. Yeah. Or not right after, but just a couple decades after the British civil war, there was more unrest. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, there was kind of constant. I think he. Yep. Um, do you know the years of the British Civil War? I'm pretty sure it that that overlapped with. Life. It was like 1620 to 1660, I think. Okay, like yeah. That. So in his early years, when he was studying at mm-hmm. school and and kind of getting into politics, that was still ongoing. And then he also lived through like the last major bubonic plague outbreak in London. Which was fucking gnarly. Because he's a good doctor. That's why he lived. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then he also, um, the other sort of like impressive historical event that he lived through was, um, which I, I hadn't heard of until I was reading about him, the, the, I think it was referred to as like the Great Fire of London. Oh, which was yeah. like a fire that burned for like, multiple days and destroyed like the old medieval center of the city. Yeah, didn't it level like some crazy... 27 blocks of london or something yeah like basically like the old original city was destroyed it like burned all the way to like the roman walls that once you know surrounded the city has all y'all listening have you really thought about just how much crap europe has been through throughout (laughs) the centuries like massive like the entire city was burnt down like four times and then you know and before that like Thousands of people were just like dying of this mysterious thing that yeah. everyone knew, like uh-huh. had wiped out uh-huh. a huge chunk of the population a couple centuries. And then they before. rebuilt, and like you know, yeah. another two hundred years they had everything rebuilt, and then it all got decimated during World War Two. World War One, then well, World War Two. Well, you're right. Then Imagine they, yeah. that. I mean, that was oh. almost even more horrifying in terms of destroying like acreage. But yeah, gnarly stuff. Yeah. When he went to the when he fled to the Netherlands, John Locke. That was like a really fruitful time for his writing. I think he wrote like five pivotal books within, or I shouldn't describe them as books. Some are like letters, they call them. It's like mm-hmm. long form essays, basically. Um, but he wrote like five of his most important works within like a four year period while he was living there. Um, so he was very, very productive. And yeah, his views on natural rights and government were pretty damn radical at the time. So similar to Hobbes, he kind of had a target on his back because his ideas made sense and 
were slowly becoming very popular and they directly threatened the status quo of you know the monarchy system and so and he kind of hobnobbed with the intelligentsia of that time of the enlightenment era he was really well respected knew a lot of those people him and isaac newton were like buddies <laughs> they'd like wander in gardens together and like apparently Locke would try to talk physics with newton and and assumption is he didn't really know that much about it so right. newton would always drive the conversation back to philosophy because he just <laughs> was like it was a better conversation if they did that and then the likes of thomas i mean obviously john Locke greatly influenced the american revolution yep. which when we get more into his political philosophy that'll become clear if that wasn't already known to listeners but thomas jefferson just to kind of cement how influential Locke was, Thomas Jefferson said that John Locke and Isaac Newton were the two greatest men who ever lived. So. <laughs> That's pretty high praise. Totally. Very That's... high praise. Yeah. Dang. Yeah. So, yeah, he was he was the shit um, <laughs> in the 17th and early 18th century. Yeah. And then I guess, I mean, there's a lot to unpack, but I can kind of give like a quick overview of his political thinking give me the rundown because what i know right now is that he thought that man was a social animal by nature and that for the most part that humans are reasonable and tolerant yeah that's it <laughs> no, that's not yeah no, that's no, no, no. all i know that's, that's that's the cliff notes yeah <laughs> i listened to one podcast this week yeah so teach me Okay, well, so... I'm like that hyper ADHD, like, kid, and you're like the Zen teacher right now. <laughs> yeah, that I'm is like the dynamic, right isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that is a good start, and I think is kind of, like, where John Locke starts, is in, in understanding that, like, man, he believed that human nature is, and, and human beings themselves are, are characterized by reason and by tolerance. So he believed like fundamentally to his philosophical and political thinking is the idea that that human beings are rational actors, which mm-hmm. you, the classical liberal tradition is in is built around that notion. Correct. But like Hobbes, there is some overlap with Hobbes, but then there's some very obvious areas where they like they come to very different conclusions, but some of their foundational ideas are similar. One of them being that. Though humans are rational beings, um, human nature allows people to be selfish. So human nature sort of leads people to maybe be quote unquote evil. But Locke, I think maybe where he diverges from Hobbes initially is, is Locke believes that, that human beings can kind of overcome that primal instinct with reason and their intellect. So perhaps he was, you kind of found Hobbes to be optimistic and I, and I could see that and right, you made now, a good argument Now, for even it, as you're talking about man being rational and that they could overcome that with rationality, that's really what I was arguing last week. That you believe that. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know. But not necessarily Hobbes because Hobbes right. thinks that you have to have some sort of Leviathan to yes, manage people. Exactly. Yeah. So maybe I am more in line with, with the lock. Yeah. The lock in. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's kind of where he starts. He like he puts a lot of faith in human beings' ability to reason and to and to come to to come to rational conclusions through their ability to reason and like observe the world and learn about the mm-hmm. world and learn from their experience. Which optimistic Stephen would say definitely 
cynical Steven would say, I don't see that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a mixed Woo! bag. <laughs> but please continue. <laughs> so, so then kind of the next tier, that's like his understanding of human beings. And then his understanding of government. And this is where things get radical um, for his time. He believed that legitimate political government is the result of a social contract, which similar to Hobbes, mm-hmm. where people in the state of nature transfer some of their rights to the government in order to to better ensure this is where he differs from Hobbes because Hobbes agrees that, yes, like people leave the state of nature because the state of nature is is wild and dangerous and potentially short, brutish and hard. And so they voluntarily enter into this social contract and there is some form of government, whereas Hobbes believed you had to have the government to kind of to maintain people's good behavior. Mm-hmm. Locke believed that the government's really only role is basically to ensure rule of law, but to ensure our basic rights that we are born with. Gotcha. So, and they don't have anything the government has no role beyond that. Mm, sounds nice. And right, yeah. And so, and and so, Locke was the 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 something. Honestly, Americans we today take for granted. He really first put forth this idea that humans are born with these inalienable rights of of life, property, and and liberty. Mm-hmm. So that was completely radical at the time. To say that like individuals are are endowed with these natural rights that no other man or government can take from you. And in fact, the government's only job is to simply ensure that no other man tries to take those rights from from somebody or from you, I should say. And the other really radical bit is that if the government does not hold up their end of the bargain... We voluntarily enter into this mm-hmm. agreement with the government. They're going to protect our rights. We're going to let them do that. And we're going to be rational actors and, you know, enjoy our rights. If the government doesn't hold up, uphold their end of the bargain, then the people living within that social contract have every right to overthrow and replace that government. So he, he argued that revolution was absolutely legitimate under certain mm-hmm. circumstances. Sure. Again, something that inspired the American Revolution. Right. And that's where a big divergence from Hobbes was. Yes. Is that he's like, yeah, you you enter into the Leviathan system voluntarily. But once you're in. You're in. You're in. Right. Right. Yeah. So it seems like Hobbes just put like kind of at the crux of it, just put like more hope and faith in Mm -hmm. government and in those institutions, whereas Locke was much more skeptical of them. And so... I think that's that's those are kind of the the basics. But there's I mean, there's a lot we can dive into in terms of uh, natural rights, the social contract. Actually, one thing that's important, his idea of property Mm -hmm. and property rights. So property is one of the things that he believed was a natural right of human beings, their ability to, to own something. They not only owned their bodies, but his definition of property expanded beyond your your physical self also to basically the fruits of your labor okay so he would in he would describe it as if you mix your labor with some natural resource the result of that mixing that thing that you make from the tree or from you know whatever it is that is that is your property now 
and you have you have rights over that and dominion over that. Hmm. Which again was kind of a radical thing because it just gave people more independence and planting that seed in people's minds when they lived in a very different society at the time. Right. Was dangerous. Now, now I would be interested to see where this ties into the more Marxist thinking that then being a laborer entitles you to a portion of a business's goods. Yeah, that's actually a really, really interesting, great question. Um, the little bit I was, I, I came across not like that theory fleshed out, but just that Marxian thinkers will sometimes use Locke's definition mm-hmm. of property as in as that argument, basically. Right. That might be worth like breaking down. Let's think about that for a second. Okay. I don't have a good answer for no, it yet. No, right. Let's think I, about no, it. No, no, no. Because I know, I know what I think about that. My worst nightmare is coming true. <laughs> Just kidding. The commies are back. No. Am I a communist? You can't get away from uh. communism because Marxism and communism is so prominent in today's thinking that it scares me so i always think about it if you like what you're hearing the best way to tell us about it would be on apple podcasts or on facebook.com slash whiskey bench pod for android users there you can leave us a five-star rating and a one or two sentence review to help others find the show thank you to reagan james for the use of our theme music the habit off her album message find her work on spotify and apple music so, so Locke would say, I walk into the forest, I chop down a tree, and I split it into a cord of wood. I can then own that wood and sell it for some, to someone to burn. Yes. Now, if I hire someone to go chop down that tree and pay them, they chop it down but I still receive all of the wood that I can then sell. Because you've paid for it. So. Right. Yeah. But the other, but the, the Marxist argument would be that, well, no, someone else chopped down the tree. So now he's entitled to at least part of that, which I would say is not true. Right. Because he agreed to chop down the tree. Yes. So that actually is where um, Locke does make a distinction there. When he originally like writes about property and defines it as sort of you mix your labor with something and the result of that is yours he he also outlines some some rules around that and and those are that you cannot um that you can only take as much of a resource as you can use before it spoils so he was thought it was important that we didn't waste resources that he mm-hmm. didn't think people should be able to hoard you know all the apples in an orchard just so that they could have them for themselves but then waste them and exclude other people sure um and he also said i would and i would tend to say no you can but there's an ethical and moral question then to play sure but like it's within your rights to do that 100 percent. so but yes so, you might just be a meanie head right <laughs> meanie head. yeah that's fair um so i think i think he's He's sort of building on this idea. Okay. So first he says, like, you shouldn't take more than you can actually use because we don't want to spoil and waste things. He also says that you should leave, quote, enough and as good for others. 
and yeah, and that you can only acquire property through your own labor. Then he kind of comes to the to the conclusion that because these rules aren't totally practical in the real world, mm-hmm. he comes to the conclusion that we need a currency. Okay. And we need to be able to exchange with a currency because because that co- sort of makes these other ideas these rules they're they're not really a concern any longer. Right. Cuz then I could grow a dozen apple trees and have a plethora of this product but I don't have to worry about wasting any of it because I can exchange it with somebody else. And it isn't just a barter system where potentially there's mm-hmm. waste. We have a currency right. that, that makes it efficient. So, so I think there with like the Marxist labor theory, when, when the employer exchanges currency to buy your labor, that's you forfeit your yeah right to yeah you've been compensated yes. for that labor yes yeah. that's 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 your would, property yeah. yeah yeah i agree with oh, that <laughs> i was like oh we got we got to debunk this before someone comes after my business yeah <laughs> moral of the story is you're entitled to nothing unless you own the business or you're a partner in the business it's the way it is make something if you want profits i mean <laughs> Yeah, it it right. I mean, it's different levels of ownership, right? right? And like I'm I'm I own my body and my labor and my intellect and my talents and I I essentially rent those to my employer for a certain fee. Mm-hmm. And I think I think that's exactly what John Locke was getting at. And and yeah, and the business owner has I guess invested more resources mm-hmm. and and um, mixed liability. his labor more to acquire the the business. Mm-hmm. Which in John Locke's examples, I mean, he uses like really, like literally he uses like the apple falling from a tree in a forest. Right. Which is a very simplistic model to <laughs> to try to have these like discussions around. So I mean, the property rights idea, though, is, it was definitely revolutionary. Although um, great ideas can be scaled from simplicity. Oh, for sure. Right? So for sure. A for good sure. idea can start simple and be scaled easily into more complex systems, so... Yeah, that's, that's, a a good good, that's when you know it's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know what doesn't scale well? Hmm. Communism. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> it's just never fucking worked. Mm-mm. We should try it again. One more time. <laughs> Not communism. Socialism oh. works in communities of about 100 people. <laughs> yeah, if that. Um, once, once you tip that threshold, oof, it's hell to pay. Things get gnarly. Yeah. So we talked about. So does John Locke think then that like, does he think that people have a tendency to respect other people's rights or that we, we, we somehow have an inclination to seek that peaceful coexistence and governments and government is there just kind of as a safe fall to, to protect that? Or do you Um, think that he, he, cause he, I mean, he thought man was at the root good, correct? That was his view of of man, um, or by nature. Yeah, good. yeah, yeah. I would say that. I think he he believed that the state of nature could be relatively peaceful. He wasn't as as pessimistic about human nature mm-hmm. as Hobbes was. Right. Not, he acknowledged not, that people can do commit harmful acts mm-hmm. against their fellow man, and that people can be selfish. But but I would say ultimately he had more skepticism of of like organized governments than he did of individuals right he placed a really high value on individuals and and he did address sort of like what do you do when people 
when people disrupt the peace in within the social contract. And we mentioned how he thought, you know, revolution was justified when the government didn't uphold their end of mm-hmm. ensuring your rights to life, liberty and property. Um, and then he also sort of argued for like basically like an eye for an eye justice. But he made clear that like any sort of retribution paid to a criminal needs to be proportional to the crime. And it was really only meant not meant to punish the person for simply for punishing them, but but for to act as a deterrent to deter future crime. He was just a practical dude. Okay. Frankly. So <laughs> from what I understand, Locke also believed that man had an innate sense of right and wrong and that probably people would disagree on the specifics, but it could be worked past. Do you know in your research where he where he was maybe theologically? Was he a theist, pantheist, like a lot of those early oh, thinkers were? Yeah, I would say, well, one slight correction. Raised, you know, Anglican or in an Anglican country. Yeah, I think he was um, he was raised Protestant. Mm-hmm. That's an important distinction since there's right. a lot of bloody wars between and Catholics. He definitely wasn't Catholic. Every, he was Protestant. England was, really wasn't by that time, right? I mean, there was... No. Yeah. Just the poor Irish. But uh, um, Oh, you're right. Yeah. They're all alone out there. <laughs> Those poor guys. Um, yeah. So he did not think... He, he didn't agree with the idea of innate ideas. Hmm. He, and I think, I mean, honestly, I think a lot of these, these thinkers like Hobbes and Locke and we'll learn about Rousseau later, but I think he kind of falls into this category too. I think they were largely like, to some degree, rebelling against, I mean, they were clearly rebelling against like the status quo of the time they were challenging it actively. But I also think like the Christian doctrine, I think that to some degree they were rebelling against that as mm-hmm. well. I wouldn't Locke wasn't an atheist. You know, he he absolutely believed in creation and he believed in like a a divine a divine creator. Right. And it sounds like a source of life. And it sounds like with his his basic principles were kind of that in quote God given Yes. Right. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Those were the inalienable or God given rights. Yes. Yeah, okay. They were bestowed to us by our or upon us by our creator. But I think he he also recognized that religion could be used and was used by like the crown for example to oppress people mm-hmm. right and so i think in that regard he he kind of rejected some of those ideas and he definitely he didn't believe he believed so strongly in, in people's ability to reason he didn't think people were born with innate knowledge he didn't think people were born knowing that that god is real or what the difference is between right and wrong he firmly believed that like you had to learn those things throughout your life okay which where does Hobbes stand on innate ideas did we get into that last week I don't recall I don't think we did and and I can't say that I came across anything that was specifically clear on that yeah you know that was one of my big confusions was that he thought that man would diverge into the war you know all versus all but then we need the Leviathan and one of my questions was like well where what qualifies anyone to be in that position yeah kind of with morals and things like that and then i dove into my thoughts on that i'll have to get back on that one 
Yeah. I should I, research hop some more now that I have some perspective on Locke. Yeah, I yeah, they're they're interesting to like compare and contrast for sure. Um, because there is I think they kind of start from a relatively similar place and then mm-hmm. they just like I said, they go they come to different conclusions. And and Locke never like directly quotes or names Hobbes in any of his writing, but there are some mm. I was listening to a few podcasts and and they read some quotes from Locke that you can tell he's referring to Leviathan. He's basically saying like, that's a fucking stupid idea. (laughs) Well, they were so close. I mean, granted their lifetimes overlapped. Yeah. So you be interesting to see if they ever met each other. Yeah. That's, that's a good, I don't, I don't think that there's any um, like historical evidence that they Mm. did, but, but certainly Locke would have known about Hobbes because he was quite famous and his, And his writing was well known. And Locke was like, I mean, he had a a bachelor's and a master's and was, you know, a prominent thinker. So he was, I'm sure he had come across um, Hobbes's work mm-hmm. and probably knew it really well. One of Locke's arguments for why people aren't born knowing that, like, God exists was that that if those ideas were innate, he argued that we would be able to observe them in some similarity across cultures. And he said at the time that we do not. Um, and then he compared like, you know, basically like, I don't think he was, ex- well, I haven't read it. So I don't know if he was explicitly referring to Islam, but he was pro- talking to like that, that part of the world, mm-hmm. their culture and their religion compared to Europe's is so different that clearly man isn't born with this like innate idea that there's a creator because look at these radically different conclusions that we came to. Interesting. Me in the 21st century with the gift of hindsight or the benefit of hindsight. I think that that's like, I think that's totally foolish. I think that if you look at the history of man, almost every culture has sought kind of the same come to very similar conclusions about a divine creator and like, some sort of intelligent being starting it all and mm-hmm. and understanding that humans have this there's something distinct f- about us compared to the rest of of the creatures on earth and and there's something unique about that right. and like oh you dirty filthy speciesist all <laughs> <laughs> oh, right yeah damn it i am a species but like yeah i i don't know i look at human history and i feel like there's a very similar pattern of people like questioning like that there's something beyond them and there's something more and there's something bigger that started it all and we might it might manifest in different in different sort of traditions but ultimately the conclusion is the same so i think that that kind of maybe implies that there is some sort of there's an instinct in us to seek an understanding of of where we came from and how this all started. And we all kind of tend to come to a very similar conclusion or we have throughout most of human history. And that might imply that there's something there. There's something right. to that argument. There's an innate element to it. Interesting. Yeah. He loved to learn. So he just thought, you know, people, people are sort of blank slates when they're born and, mm-hmm. but they're, but they're, but they are rational and maybe the only innate thing. He didn't quite say this that I came across, but sort of what I gathered from what he, from what I did read it seems like maybe the only innate idea that he accepted was like the animalistic instinct to survive, mm-hmm. which makes sense. I mean, that's like hardwired into us. I don't even know if that's an idea. I think that's just, that's, that is just like 
that's almost like a part of our physiology wouldn't you say like the instinct to not harm ourselves and well right like without the basic survival element of existence nothing else follows so it's right probably the most important thing of all yeah (laughs) and as, as we can see throughout all of history especially in developing countries and things like that like once the basic needs are addressed then it's easy to innovate and things like that right and it's like yeah. why the heck would you expect a country with poverty rampantly right like trying to address like pollution right that's actually something that is really interesting and there's a theory <laughs> oh okay uh there's something called the well there's something called the kuznets curve which kind of broadly talks about what you were just saying that like as a society grows wealthier they have more resources and time well mm-hmm. time's one resource but they have more resources to be able to to devote to things beyond basic survival there's there's a theory that that you can apply that to the environment and it's known as the environmental kuznets curve is sort of the the graphical representation of this idea and it is that when as societies develop it's like a um an upside down u so as societies develop there's an increase in pollution and then eventually, it's not a bell curve. Is it steeper, or it actually? Or I, guess, I guess, yeah. No, I don't think it's a bell curve. Okay. No, it depends on the society because some people reach have like a flatter underlying gotcha. curve than others. Sure. Depends on factors, but that's always an economist answer. It right. depends. It depends. <laughs> but um, but basically, broadly speaking, as societies develop, pollution and environmental degradation increases for a period of time. Mm-hmm. Eventually, depending on the circumstances within that society they reach a particular uh threshold of prosperity where beyond that point environmental degradation actually diminishes and the and environmental quality improves and that's for the very reason you were mm-hmm. just saying eventually when people have the resources they can devote more of their time and their money and their energy to caring for things beyond basic survival like and then, improving their environment and then I, there's got to be a theory for this it gets to some point where things are so good and you have so much time that you start worrying about things that you shouldn't be worrying about. We've reached that we've point, reached in, that the point in the United States. <laughs> but I've actually, we've completely derailed right now. Yeah. <laughs> I have heard so many great compelling arguments that if you're concerned about the environment, the best thing that would happen would be like a global effort, not a Paris climate accord, none of that nonsense, like just dump money into developing China and India. Oh, well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like get get these nations past beyond their... flatten that un, that yep. underlying curve, right, of the mm-hmm. the EKC, the environmental cousins curve and get people to the point where environmental quality starts to improve, get them there faster. Yeah. Yeah. But foreign aid doesn't fucking work, so that's not really the answer. But <laughs> well, <laughs> right. But in in whatever ways, I mean free trade, like opening mm-hmm. the the global economy up so that these countries can grow wealthy and prosper and develop faster is absolutely like would probably have a it would have a significant impact on mm-hmm. things like greenhouse gas emissions and right climate change anthropogenic climate change important distinction the climate always <laughs> changes but we are concerned about man-made anyway right. yes terminology matters it does <laughs> okay interesting so anyway yeah he he definitely we are blank slates hmm Okay, so last week, over last week I dove in quite a bit of kind of like, oh, what do I think about this? Where, where, where do you lie in this argument? Like, do you align with Locke? I, I can tell that you do in many ways, but 
Are there any places where you don't align with him? Uh, maybe where you were more in line with Hobbes. This could change once we learn about Rousseau. You know, yeah. where do you tend to to view nature of man? You know, like I said at the top of the hour, I think Henning did a really good job assigning this person <laughs> to me because, like, uh, I largely agree with him. You know, there's a lot of commentators who say that, like, the more you dig into his work, he has some, he makes some contradictory arguments. I'm not a John Locke scholar, so I can't pretend to be able to know what those are to be able to really dive into them. But I think broad strokes wise, from what I know, I'm pretty well aligned with him. He was he was sort of known as the father of liberalism Mm -hmm. and he was one of the first empiricists. So, I mean, he really looked at the world. He saw a lot of opportunity in man and in the world, and he put a lot of faith in human beings ability to to make rational decisions Mm -hmm. and to make and for those decisions to not only benefit them, but to benefit their fellow man and society at large. And he believed that people could govern themselves like that's the other completely radical idea. So in terms of his political theory, I'm probably pretty closely aligned. I didn't I didn't come across anything that I thought like, well, that's fucking insane. Oh, OK. <laughs> um, the innate ideas, though, that I was just describing, like I do. I, I think that there are some, of course, like define innate ideas. I think there's some. I think there are some things that are are. And maybe they're just so deeply ingrained because of our like ancestral experience, like we were talking about mm-hmm. in the last episode, that these things are kind of like imprinted on our brains through like centuries of, of human beings experiencing these things. Um, so does that make it an innate idea or not? I, I don't know. But like, I guess probably not. Locke would probably argue that that's still learned behavior. But I do think that there are at least maybe like innate questions. Maybe that's how I would describe it. I think we're kind of born with like an instinct that like in terms of of the God question, like we're kind of we're born with this this instinct that there's something beyond ourselves and there's something that started this thing that we're living in. Although now that I'm saying that, like maybe that's just a logical conclusion to come to once you start thinking about like, well, how the hell did I get here? So maybe that's a symptom of rationality. Yeah, you could probably argue that. Oh, hmm. interesting. I've never made that argument before, but I'm going to have to follow this, this yeah. thought process through this week while I'm I'm kind of thinking and reflecting on, on this conversation. Yeah. Maybe I am just completely aligned with Locke. <laughs> Maybe. Now, now it would be interesting to see now oh, a man. symptom of rationality being the question of why we're here and seeking God. I wonder... There's probably some good Eric Weinstein, evolutionary biologist, probably has some good info on that from that perspective. Someone like maybe, um, oh, what's his name? The prominent atheist, um, Sam. Harris. Yeah, Sam Harris. He probably has a biological or, or neuroscience approach to be like, oh, this, that's, you know, it's not innate, it's not God. So the atheist argument would be that it's a symptom of rationality. Interesting. Which I think... That actually sounds really reasonable to me. <laughs> yeah, it's worth worth exploring. Um, yeah, and 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 as someone who I identify as a Christian, <laughs> to use the term of art of our age, but and, and yeah, and so like I I believe in in an intelligent being starting it all, kind of a more of like a hands off approach. I kind of think he like threw a pebble in in like the universe, and the ripple effects led to us sitting here talking. Um, I got a book for you to read. It's right on the shelf over there. Oh. Oh, what is it? I think it's called Redeeming Science, a God-Centered Approach. 
And he basically goes through all of the different theories out there from a Christian perspective of creation, be it like there's young earth, there's something called framework, there's there's like six or seven arguments, and he mm. just goes through each of them and like what their core belief is, and then kind of just like steel mans each one and kind of like leaves you to, to look through it and be like, oh, I wonder which one I align with more. And then he gives like a brief analysis of like, where he thinks that those theories fall short. Hmm. It's an interesting book. Yeah. Let me take it with me when I leave. Yeah, might as well. <laughs> um, I believe it's uh, Poitras. 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 Really, really brilliant mathematician, I believe. Oof, math. We're going to have to talk God eventually. Yeah. Like soon. Yeah, we should have. Um, maybe after Rousseau. That'd probably be good. Yeah. Oh, so many things to talk about. There are a lot of things to talk about. We have to talk about Second Amendment. I know. I've been curious to know your thoughts. I'm dying to yeah. talk about it. <laughs> so I think this is probably a pretty good spot to start wrapping stuff up. Let's do a little bookkeeping, I guess. Uh, update next week. You and Henning are gone. Yeah. So we have to make a decision right now. <laughs> if you want me to do something crazy, I want to talk Second Amendment so bad. Why don't you... Uh... So I can have a friend on that is very knowledgeable pro second amendment however it's going to be two of us that are so unwaveringly deeply second amendment <laughs> that it would be a good primer and maybe you guys can listen and then we can have a, a conversation or we can we can wait finish the Rousseau and then and then continue on but no matter what once we have this second amendment conversation Zach has got to be on Zach is the the friend who's very knowledgeable. Very knowledgeable. I took my handgun course from him. He's got a great perspective of it. You know, he was raised in in Las Vegas, registered Democrat, pretty pretty liberal. Moved to Montana, hated guns, was afraid of guns. So he thought the best thing he could do was go buy one hmm. to kind of conquer that fear. Good for him. And so he went, purchased a handgun, then started taking lessons. And now he's training and teaching and deeply invested in the community. And wow. I think that's a good perspective to have. But it would be nice to have all of us present because I think we have some varying perspectives, to say the least. Yeah, that'd be so interesting. So I, I want to make sure everyone's present for the conversation in one way or another, whether it's revisited or whatnot. Yeah, yeah. That's important. Hmm. So maybe we just take a little breaky break. I think, I think, <laughs> I think, dear listeners, we're gonna take. I think we should take a pre-Easter holiday break. Yes. Wrap up with Rousseau. Yes. Henning is going to present Rousseau. I have, you know, it's funny. Maybe it's actually. Maybe we should have switched them because. Yeah. Because Locke, I so am like invested in his ideas. I mean, he's like the father of like the ideology that I'm like totally like, bought into. John Locke's just my cool uncle. Yeah, I'm just like John Locke is sick. <laughs> like that's just how I feel. So like, you know, and he was incredibly influential. I mean, for Christ's right. sakes, honestly, one thing now I, I'm digressing, but the one thing that in my reading about him and listening about him over the last couple of weeks, one thing that really stuck out to me was the fact that the American Revolution mm -hmm. and the government that we established was so radical and unprecedented and it was risky. I mean, it was it was really it was taking the, this philosophical idea that human beings are rational actors, that they are endowed by their creator with unalienable rights to life, liberty and property 
and and that they could they could rule themselves basically and that we we needed some kind of rule of law that's sort of insured by a government but that government works for the people not the other way around Mm -hmm. that was completely no one had ever done that before and the american revolutionaries basically said like we're gonna take this philosophical idea that we think is fucking like makes a lot of sense and we believe in it enough that we're gonna put this into practice and we're going to like take the risk on this continent separate I mean, it was it was a wild mm-hmm. place. And and sure, like there is plenty of room for criticism about obviously slavery, about the treatment of the native peoples who were already here. However, I mean, just well, that's a whole other question. But like, I think to some degree, I mean, slavery is abhorrent. It's been with us. It still is in parts of the mm-hmm. world. It's a scourge on mankind a dark part of what human nature can lead to it's sort of what hobbes uh, i think worried about right right exactly to some degree the, the um, evil that people are capable of right yeah and and i think you know also separate from that question but sort of the question of people societies evolve right mm-hmm. and so like and again it, i've said this before and this is again why these ideas are so you know we're so radical you know we've, we've got a a very vocal group of people that live in America and truly hate what the United States is and they would love to see it truly I think utterly destroyed. Yeah, they advocate for that openly. They do. Yeah. Because they view the founders as being these horrible people and what's beautiful about the ideas and what's so radical about them is that even though their perspective of their perspectives in that time may have been warped or immoral like the values translate and hold true in more modern perspectives. Yes. That 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 is absolutely. And again, like you were saying before, that's how you know you have a good idea, right? Yeah. Because it's scalable and it can be it can it can evolve with I guess it's weird like I did, I can't fathom why people believe that like maybe a bad person can have a good idea. That people don't understand that yeah, a bad person seems can have like a good idea. That seems to be one of the core issues. Right. Is that Well, yeah. If you're a bad person, all your ideas are bad. And I think also like defining bad. True. Right. Like I'm talking good and bad morality terms, but well, but even that, I mean, Mm -hmm. things that are considered bad now, Mm -hmm. rightfully, in my opinion, weren't considered bad in other parts, periods of time. That was all people had ever known. There was no, Hmm. there was nothing to compare it to. Right. Right. But, but my point just about like the, 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 the major risk and the bravery in, and the, the ingenuity that it took for these people to say, like, we're going to stray from Mother England, which was the most powerful, mm-hmm. arguably one of the most powerful monarchies, kingdoms, governments in the world at that time. And we're going to go at our own and we're going to go at our own in this like continent of utter wilderness. And we're going to fucking we're going to just do it. And we mm-hmm. don't care because we believe so strongly in these ideas. And then we went on to be, you know. To be the most powerful, like, power in the world. Still are. Right. And, like, that, there is something to be deeply respected and proud of in that. Mm -hmm. And, and again, as people evolve, as our cultures evolve, as we learn more, as we, as our moralities change, you know, it's worth looking back and, and certainly acknowledging sort of the things that, the, the stains in that history 
but it's also really important that we don't like throw the baby out with the bathwater to use kind of a cliche metaphor. Like there's a lot of value in, in these founding principles that were based on Locke's philosophy. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we want to stray from them. I think the idea that people have irrational actors that are endowed with, with rights over themselves and their property and their, their ideas and their bodies is really, really fucking important. And the idea that we would want to give any more that we would want to give up any of those innate rights or maybe that's the only innate ideas, yeah. those rights, <laughs> give up those innate rights to, to a power bigger and than ourselves. I mean, that's, uh, that's a not, that's not just a slippery slope. That's like diving off the cliff. And, mm-hmm. and you know, I, I wish that we, um, I hope that we can recognize the value in, in this incredible experiment that we're a part of because it's unique mm-hmm. and it's been modeled around the world poorly often, oh, yeah. <laughs> but, but there's a reason why people look to the United States as like a model of what a democratic Republic looks like. It's Beautiful. pretty cool. The French tried to have a revolution. They just fucking killed everybody and descended into total <laughs> chaos. <laughs> Jacobins. Don't Anyways. do it like the French. Mm-hmm. So. Well, I think that's a beautiful way to end on that note. Cheers. Cheers. We will see you all in two weeks. Adios. Thank you for joining us on The Whiskey Bench. If you would do us a favor, please tell a friend about the show in person, with a text, or by sharing about it on social media. You can join us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and Pinterest, all at Whiskey Bench Pod. And don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Remember, always drink responsibly. And cheers to a fulfilled life with all its beauty. Thank you.